Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Drew Crime. I'm your host Drew V and for my seventh episode I will be covering the mind-boggling case of Arpana Janaga. Before I get started on the new case, I just wanted to take a moment to thank everyone who has continued to tune into my podcast thus far. With my podcast and YouTube channel, I recently just went over 5,000 total views and currently have around 75 subscribers. So, thank you again to everyone who has shown interest. It is certainly a great feeling and I do more than appreciate all the support. Also, I do plan on actually start putting out new content every two weeks from now on and I will be releasing the new episodes on Sundays with videos for YouTube to follow. So please make sure to follow or subscribe to Drew Crime on any available platform, that way you may be notified when I publish new material. Also, I just wanted to give a quick shout out and a happy birthday to one of my wonderful listeners, Tania from Philly. Thank you so much for your kind words in the YouTube comments and the amount of interest you have shown in my podcast up to this point. It really does mean a lot, so thank you again to Nia, and also thank you to everyone else who continues to tune in as well. Now, fair warning, this murder story does involve some pretty graphic material that does also include some strong signs of sexual assault during the murder, so please proceed with caution if this is something that doesn't sit well with you. Arpana's case is up there with one of the crazier cases I have researched this far, and when we get to the end of this episode, I am most certain you will understand why. This case involves a 23-year-old accomplished software engineer, Arpana Janaga, who was brutally murdered in her third-floor apartment in a neighboring teching town known as Redmond, Washington, which is located in King County, just outside of Seattle. It was a Friday on Halloween night in 2008, just days before Arpana's 24th birthday, and Arpana's apartment complex was throwing a big party for all of its residents that night. Four people who lived in the complex decided to host part of the party in their own apartment, Arpana being one of them. As the night would carry on, Arpana would mingle with other residents in her apartment before taking the party downstairs to another party on the first floor. At around 3 a.m. that night, Arpana was said by friends to have left the party to return to her own apartment on the third floor, but what her friends didn't know at the time was this would be the last time they would ever see Arpana alive ever again, and this would be just the beginning to a very brutal and terrifying end to Arpana's night. Over the next few days, Arpana's family back in India would try to contact her, but there was no response from Arpana, and this was very unlikely for her to not respond. So Arpana's family then contacted a family friend, Jay, who lived nearby, and then asked him to go over and check on Arpana. Once Jay had arrived at Arpana's apartment, he ran into one of her neighbors, Cameron Johnson, who at the time was lingering close by outside of Arpana's apartment. After speaking to one another, the two men then approached the apartment and noticed that Arpana's door had been what looked like to be kicked in, so they were able to enter her apartment by simply just pushing the door open. Once inside the apartment, Jay and Cameron made their way towards Arpana's bedroom, and this is where the two men would make a very startling and horrifying discovery. As this murder story unfolds, we learn that there were two men attending Arpana's party that Halloween night and these two men would end up becoming heavily involved in Arpana's murder case, even to the point both men were even considered to have committed this crime together. These two men would be treated differently throughout the course of this case, and it's been said by many that race would be a big contributor in how this case has played out to this point. So as the police investigation would go on and evidence was built around the two men, in the end, only one of them would really be looked at, then tried twice in court for murder, just to be acquitted of Arpana's murder, almost nine years after her death. 
Redmond police investigating Arpita's murder at the time were certain they had found their man who committed this heinous crime, but due to some law enforcement and prosecutorial miscues along the course of this case, in the end, they would finally find out they had the wrong guy. And not only did they end up having the wrong guy, but it also means that Arpina's real killer is still out there somewhere, and her murder case still remains unsolved to this day. In this episode, I want to talk a little bit about who Arpina was, and then I'll get into Arpina's story while talking about the two main suspects along the way. And then I'd like to finish out the episode with my opinions and speculated theory on this case. So please continue to join me as I really try and make sense of this whole drawn-out and very confusing murder case. This is True Crime, Episode 7, Arpana Janago. I want to be a better person. He had no problem whatsoever hitting on the undercover officer on the audio team, trying to pick her up and saying, Girl, you're thicker than a bowl of oatmeal. Hey, hey, she had a fat ass, you know what I mean? I like to see Accused killer Ali Abulaban was admonished by the judge for this outburst this morning. You murdered this man. Yes. You tortured him. Of course. Yeah, in court today, you said uh, you're not here to pretend to be remorseful. Of course not. Why would I do that? Are you remorseful? Not at all. Why? Now, before we get into Arpana's story, during my research I was able to find a few articles and court documents about this case. But there's just not a whole lot of information out there about Arpana. So I did find two podcasts that covered Arpana's case really well. And I recommend them to anyone who is interested in this story. So check out Arpana's episode on the podcast Unresolved, and definitely check out the Arpana series Suspect on Wondery. And Suspect really goes in depth with this case with great journalism, while including actual interviews from people involved in this case. The Suspect podcast is where I got most of my information about this case and for this episode. Also, I just wanted to remind everyone where you can find my Drew Crime episodes, and my episodes can be found on Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many more. I can also be found on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. One more thing before I start, any theory I speak about in this episode is based on pure speculation that comes from the facts and circumstantial evidence I have gathered from this case. And up to this point in time, no one involved in this case has ever been convicted of Arpana's murder. All sources for this episode will be included in the episode description, and if for any reason you need to contact me, I can also be reached by email at drewcrimepodcast at gmail.com. Now, with all of that out of the way, let me take a moment to talk a little bit about who Arpana Janaga was. Arpana was born on November 3rd, 1984. She was a good-looking, very intelligent, and well-established nearly 24-year-old Indian immigrant who came over to the States just a few years before her murder. According to an article from the Redmond Reporter, Janaga was a young inventor in the highly technical field of chip designing. Janaga received a master's degree in electrical and computer engineering from Rutgers University in New Jersey in October of 2007. Soon after, she was offered a job at a computer company called EMC and began working there on March 31, 2008. 
She was a top 20 winner in a digital signal controller design contest sponsored by Microchip Technology Incorporated, which is an Arizona-based company. Arpana was not only a very talented woman when it came to software engineering, but she also enjoyed more daring activities like taekwondo and riding motorcycles. Arpana had no experience with motorcycles at the time she moved to Redmond, but she ended up learning how to ride and even joined a motorcycle club called the Pacific Northwest Riders. This is where she would then meet a boy named Aaron, who she would end up having a little romantic relationship with, and I will briefly talk more about him here in just a little bit. Arpana also devoted some of her time volunteering with the local fire department and a local animal shelter. In my opinion, Arpana Janaga was the total package, and she really was committed to all of these different things in her life, all the while being liked by everyone. So it honestly really does become very hard for me to accept that someone would have any reason to harm this woman the way that they did. Arpana's tragic story would start on Halloween night in the year of 2008, located at the Valley View Apartments in Redmond, Washington. As I just mentioned before, Arpana's apartment complex would be throwing a big Halloween party for its residents that night. The party was scattered throughout the complex and there were four different residents hosting part of the party in their own apartment, Arpana being one of them. Each apartment that night was decorated with a different theme and Arpana had chosen to decorate her apartment as a haunted forest and on that night she was also dressed up as a little red riding hood. A friend of Arpana's said in an interview on Suspect that Arpana was really excited for the party because this was the first time in her life she had ever celebrated Halloween. During the party, Arpana was said to be mingling with other residents and having a pretty good time, but there was one guy present at her apartment that ended up having some type of argument with her, but from what I understand, that's as far as that would go. Also during the party, there was a guy named Neil who was said by others to maybe have had a little too much to drink that night and was acting like a quote-unquote douche. Neil was challenging other people at the party to an arm wrestling match and this is when Neil would meet another party goer, 26-year-old Emmanuel Fair. Emmanuel was dressed up as a construction worker that night and the two men would eventually go outside the apartment to show each other their boxing moves and this is when Neil would accidentally catch Emmanuel on the lip drawing blood. Emmanuel was said to have laughed it off and then went back inside Arpana's apartment to clean himself off in her bathroom. During this time as well, Arpana's next door neighbor Cameron Johnson would show up to the party and it's been said that he was fairly drunk already when he had arrived. Cameron ends up playing a very big role in this case as does Emmanuel and these are the two men that I just spoke about before that later become heavily involved in this case. So around 9pm, Arpana would then move the party from her place down to another apartment. Drinks from the night would continue to flow into the early morning hours of now, Saturday, November 1st. And then at around 3am, Arpana decided to leave her friend's apartment on the first floor and return home to hers. Also during this time frame around midnight, Cameron and Emmanuel had just first met each other at Arpana's party, so Cameron had invited Emmanuel to his car to listen to some beats. Then after about 20 to 30 minutes, the two men were done listening to some music. They both returned inside, went their separate ways, and then later on in this case, both men said that we'd never see each other again for the rest of the night, which does become very important to remember. So Arpana had just returned back to her apartment at around 3am, and this is when a neighbor sharing Arpana's walls would start to hear noises coming from her apartment. The neighbor described the noises to what sounded like Arpana possibly engaging in some sexual activity, so he thought nothing of it and went back to bed. 
The neighbor that said that he heard noises coming from up in his apartment at this time was next door neighbor Cameron Johnson. Then in the next few hours around 8 a.m., another neighbor by the name of Kyle woke up to a disturbing noise coming from Arpena's apartment. Kyle described the noise as almost like a horrible growling noise which would only last for about 20 seconds, then followed by the sound of a large thump. Kyle said he then heard footsteps and the sound of water running from inside Arpena's apartment and this would last for about an hour. Even though Kyle did hear these noises that morning, there wasn't really anything suspicious about them at the time, so he thought nothing of them and just went about his morning. And these noises heard by Kyle that morning were more than likely Arpanus' last moments alive. So then the following day approached, now Sunday, November 2nd, and Arpanus' family had not heard from Arpana. And Arpana was not returning their calls, so like any concerned parent, they called a family friend the following day on Monday, November 3rd. This friend, whose name is Jay, had lived close by to Arpana at the time and was asked by Arpana's father to go over to her apartment to check on her. Co-workers at Arpana's job had also noticed her absence the next day on Monday as well, and at this point it had been about three full days since Arpana's father had last heard from her. So then Jay arrived at Arpana's apartment around 9am that Monday morning. Jay then walked up the stairs to Arpana's third floor apartment, and as I mentioned earlier, this is when he noticed the next door neighbor Cameron Johnson standing close by to Arpana's apartment. Jay spoke with Cameron and realized that Cameron knew Arpana, so then the two would approach the front door of her apartment, and this is where Jay would realize something wasn't right. Both men noticed that Arpana's door had been kicked in and the locks were busted, so all they had to do was just push the front door open to enter the apartment. Once inside the apartment, the men noticed the apartment was disheveled and there was a strong odor that smelled like bleach and there were even some burn marks on the carpet. So Jay then called out to Arpana, but there was no response. Then the two men proceeded to the back of the apartment towards Arpana's bedroom and this is where they would make another startling and this time very horrifying discovery. At the foot of the bed, lying naked and face down on the bedroom floor, was 24-year-old Arpana Janaga. Her body had already started decomposing and she was covered with numerous liquids including her own blood. From the waist down, Arpana's body had been covered with some type of oil and her hands and fingers had been stained blue from some other type of substance as well. Inside Arpana's bathroom, her comforter was in the bathtub soaking in water and bleach and it too was covered in blood as well. Jay then asked Cameron if he would check Arpana for a pulse, but Cameron said he didn't want to touch, so Jay then hysterically called 911. Okay, 
Once police arrived at the scene, Jay and Cameron were asked to wait outside while police searched Arpana's apartment. After searching Arpana's apartment, police were then able to say Arpana's death was considered suspicious and there were signs of possible sexual trauma as well. So the crime scene was then locked down and Arpana's body would be transported to the coroner for an autopsy report to be conducted. Arpana's autopsy would be conducted a few days later on November 6, 2008 and the report concluded that Arpana had been strangled and asphyxiated to death. She had blunt force blows to the head, there were several breaking of her teeth, her tampon had been removed, a boot lace had been used to strangle her, and she was even gagged with her own underwear covered with duct tape. It was also revealed later on that Arpana had most likely fought back during the attack, and the evidence shows that this was most likely a sexually motivated crime. Her body had also been scrubbed clean in an attempt to cover up any evidence, and this is why she was covered in numerous liquids such as bleach, motor oil, and the blue toilet bowl cleaner found on her hands. The killer at one point had even attempted to light her body on fire, but the oil wouldn't light because it wasn't flammable. According to investigators in this case, Arpana was murdered in her apartment somewhere in the hours between 3 and 8 a.m. on Saturday, November 1st, 2008. Meanwhile, police started to investigate the outside of Arpana's apartment complex, and after finding nothing, they decided to look into the complex's only dumpster, and this is where the police would find key evidence in this case. Inside the dumpster, police found a trash bag with some items inside. The contents inside the bag consisted of a bottle of motorcycle motor oil, burned bed sheets, burned parts of a costume, a robe with blood stains on it, and all of these items were traced back to our victim, Arpana Janago. Also missing from the scene was her motorcycle, which was later located at a repair shop she had taken it to. Arpana was also missing one of her ID cards, her keys, her Blackberry cell phone, and her digital camera, which were the only items of value taken from her apartment. And to this day, none of these items have ever been recovered. So police now had a crime scene along with evidence from the dumpster, and next they would knock on the other residents' door of the complex, trying to see if anyone had witnessed anything unusual from Halloween night. But at the time, no one had seen a thing. The police didn't have any idea of who may have committed this crime, and in the coming week, police would also track down almost everyone who was present the night of the party, and ended up collecting 23 different people's statements and DNA samples. So while the Redmond police would try and gather evidence for this case, detectives have decided to interview Arpana's next-door neighbor, Cameron Johnson, and ask him about his whereabouts on both Halloween night and the next day on Saturday the 1st. In my opinion, this is where Cameron starts to draw some suspicions towards himself in this case. Also, Cameron would be interviewed by police a total of four different times along the course of this case, and for some reason or reasons, he was granted immunity for two of them. In his interviews with police, he says around 3 a.m. he heard muffled noises coming from Arpana's apartment, but really thought nothing of it. Then around the same time, Cameron tells police he texted an old girlfriend looking for a booty call, and then ended up just going back to bed. Police then asked him if he texted or called anyone else that night, and Cameron replied no, but what Cameron didn't know was that the police already had Arpana's phone records from that night, and those records would say otherwise. Cameron tells police in his interview that he called Arpana around 10 a.m. to check in on her, but it turns out that call was never placed, and Cameron had actually called Arpana twice earlier that morning, once at 2.56 a.m., and then again at 3.02 a.m. Then Cameron's story, according to suspect, is that he went to breakfast at Denny's around 10 a.m., 
and then drove to the Canadian border because he said he wanted to explore. Cameron did not have a passport with him, and when he tried to blow past the border, Canadian police caught up to him and denied his entry into the country, thus making him turn around and go back. Then Cameron tells police that he drove from the border over to a friend's house that was having a belated Halloween party, and this is where he would get into a wrestling match with another partygoer he just met and would end up injuring his leg. After Cameron had spoken to detectives for the last time on November 5th, detectives then let Cameron leave the station with his cell phone, and it wouldn't be till later on that detectives would finally ask Cameron for his phone to look at, but by then it had been too late, and they could tell that it had been scrubbed. Therefore, any helpful information that may have been on that phone from that weekend was now gone. There are also a few other strange things about Cameron during these interviews that I wanted to point out. Cameron at one point had told detectives that Arpina looked good that night and he was hoping to hook up with her. To me, this is important because investigators concluded that this crime was sexually motivated and from what I have gathered in my research, Cameron and Arpina were somewhat friends, but Arpina was a busy lady with everything going on in her life, so the relationship had started to drift apart. Another thing Cameron told detectives during these interviews was that he had stopped taking his psych meds around the time of Arpina's murder. And what makes this interesting is detectives never followed up, even asked Cameron about what his meds were for or why he decided to stop taking them. Another thing I noticed in Cameron's interviews is the detectives asked him if he went over to Arpana's apartment in those early hours before her murder. And Cameron didn't respond with a no, but instead responded with, I don't think so. Already it's an odd response from someone who's trying to show their innocence, but what makes this even more interesting is, in weeks after Arpana's murder, Cameron's friends would go on to say that Cameron kept asking them if he was the one who murdered Arpana. So after gathering all of this information on Cameron, I think it's safe to say that he should have been looked at much harder than he was at the time, and in my opinion, Cameron's situation was only about ready to get a little bit worse. Later that month in November 2008, police got a search warrant for Cameron's apartment and vehicle. And what they found in his vehicle and apartment became very suspicious items to police. Inside Cameron's apartment, investigators were able to find a lighter that had some gooey looking type of substance on it. And they took a picture of it, but for some reason it was never tested for possible evidence and was completely ignored. Since law enforcement did find burnt carpet inside her apartment, burned sheets, and parts of Arpana's costume also burned inside the apartment dumpster, you would think the lighter could have been a possible clue, but again, it was never treated as so. Also in Cameron's car, they were able to find a map search printout of pawn shops in the Puget Sound area, which was located just about an hour outside of Redmond. What's also intriguing about the map is the time and when it was printed, which happened to be around 10 a.m., just hours after Arpana was considered to be murdered. Remember, Arpana's phone and camera were taken from her apartment that night, and these would be perfect items to pawn and unload quickly. Now add Cameron's odd behavior and all the other evidence that surrounds him in this case, and it really becomes very hard not to speculate that he was not somehow involved in Arpana's murder especially since there's even more incriminating evidence that I haven't even spoken of yet. So at this point in the case, detectives had plenty of information. They even had a possible suspect in mind, but that wasn't enough until they got back the results from the items found in the dumpster of Arpana's apartment complex, which wouldn't arrive back until the beginning months of 2009. 
Detectives had spoken to almost everyone attending the party that night, but after they looked through partygoers' photos from the party, detectives would then start to really zero in on another man in this case. This man would end up being Emmanuel Fair, who again plays a very big role in this case. Emmanuel is an African-American male that was dressed up as a construction worker the night of the party. He helped decorate Arpana's apartment. He was the same guy that hung out with Cameron in his car for a half hour that night, and the same guy who got punched in his lip and drew blood at the party. Well, Manuel originally lived in Seattle at the time, so he took a bus to stay with his friend Leslie, who during the time of the murder lived in Valley View Apartments. Emmanuel stayed at Leslie's through the weekend and then left back to Seattle on Monday the 3rd, the same day Arpana's body was discovered. Emmanuel would ultimately leave Leslie's because police were knocking on residents' door that Monday, trying to find information on Arpana's murder. And Emmanuel at the time had a warrant out for his arrest, so Leslie then helped him hide from the police, and then he bailed once they were gone. I do have to point out that Emmanuel does have some previous run-ins with the law, which totaled around a dozen arrests, and he even spent about three years in jail for a previous and very serious sexual assault crime. Since Emmanuel was the only black man at the party and does have a checkered past, I think it was easy for detectives to target him right away. And once his DNA matched to the DNA on Arpana's neck and in several different places in Arpana's apartment, this investigation would take a turn and the Redmond police would shift their focus into a whole new direction. So the DNA results had come back from the Washington State Crime Lab, and though there were plenty of people packed into Arpana's apartment that night, there were two men's DNA that stood out from the rest, and those two men would end up being Cameron Johnson and Emmanuel Fair. According to the results from the lab, Cameron's fingerprints were all over the motorcycle oil can that was found by police in the apartment complex dumpster, and that same oil was found all over Arpana's body from the waist down. So add this incriminating evidence to Cameron's already inconsistent stories and weird behavior, and I think there was a major cause for concern here. Also included in the DNA results was a piece of duct tape that was used in Arpana's murder, her bathroom that Arpana's blood was on as well, a piece of toilet paper, and the DNA on all of these items matched to an Emmanuel Fair. So some pretty incriminating evidence towards Emmanuel as well, and it wouldn't be until much later on in this case where this evidence would be looked at differently. Also, there was a match for a third person's DNA which came from semen on a towel in Arpana's bedroom. The semen matched Arpana's romance at the time Aaron that I had mentioned at the beginning of the episode. The explanation for the semen is that Aaron was over at Arpana's apartment before Halloween and she was modeling off her new Red Riding Hood costume. Well, one thing led to another and they engaged in some sexual activity, so I'm sure the towel was used for cleaning up after they were done. Aaron did have an alibi from that night and he said he was in downtown Seattle drinking with friends and then after that he returned home alone around 4.30 a.m. So now detectives had their evidence possibly linking Cameron and Emmanuel to Arpana's murder, but only one of them would soon be arrested. So in October of 2010, Redmond officials arrested Emmanuel Fair for first-degree murder with sexual motivation. Now, real quick, everyone's probably wondering why Emmanuel was arrested for the murder of Arpana and Cameron wasn't. Well, first of all, Cameron is a white man that comes from money, and he was able to hire top-dollar lawyer representation in this case, whereas Manuel was an African-American male and had little to no money. Secondly, Emmanuel's story of his whereabouts that night, according to police, did not match up with what his phone records showed, even though Cameron's phone records were much more incriminating. 
Emmanuel had told police he went back to Leslie's apartment at around 1 a.m. and went to sleep. While Emmanuel's phone records show that he made around 20 calls between the hours of 1.45 and 4.45 a.m. A few of these calls went to Leslie, whose couch Emmanuel was sleeping on that night. And she said voicemails were left, but there was no talking, just noises of someone moving around. These noises that Leslie heard on the voice were a result of Emmanuel butt-dialing her while she was sleeping. Police seemed to think Emmanuel was awake calling girls for sex, and since he couldn't find it, that's when they think he went after Arpana. Thirdly, Emmanuel had a crime history involving a previous sexual assault. Cameron did not. And lastly, Emmanuel's DNA from Arpana's apartment that night was found in multiple places, even though Cameron's fingerprints were found on Arpana's sliding glass door that led to their shared balcony, and his DNA was found on the motor oil bottle and according to the expert, showed strong handling as well. It's important to know that Emmanuel helped decorate and clean up for the party, and to me this explains why his DNA was found on the duct tape. And he also had cleaned himself off in her bathroom after being punched, which is where Arpana's robe was hanging at the time, this explaining the most likely cause of why Emmanuel's DNA was on her robe. Also, I wanted to point out a couple things real quick about this case. One, Emmanuel was greeted for questioning by Redmond police with their guns drawn, whereas Cameron was just asked to come down to the station for questions and again being granted immunity for two of them. As to why detectives gave Cameron special treatment and immunity twice remains to be unconfirmed in this case. Also, I think it's kind of important here to know that during one of these interviews that Cameron was having with Detective Coates, he asked Detective Coates to turn the tape off because he wanted to say something to him. Well, what's interesting about this is Coates was later on the Suspect podcast what Cameron said when they had stopped the tapes, but Coates doesn't recall. Two, there was an eyewitness that was coming home to Valley View Apartments around 3 a.m. the morning Arpana would be murdered. And this person said they saw Arpana speaking to someone in her doorway. And what's interesting about this is the eyewitness's description of the person in the doorway did not match the now-accused Emmanuel Fair. Now back to our story, Emmanuel has been arrested for the murder of Arpana and a trial date would later be set, but the trial date wouldn't come until February of 2017. That means Emmanuel had already been sitting in jail for almost seven years by this point. The DAs in this trial used the evidence to try and show that Emmanuel was guilty, but also to show that Emmanuel may have not acted alone. Now, Cameron did take the stand during this trial, but due to his immunity, the courts were only allowed to ask him specific questions in order for Cameron not to incriminate himself. Cameron was considered an uncharged accomplice in this case, and the DAs were set out to prove that Emmanuel committed this murder with the possible involvement of Cameron. Well, after two months went by, the jury started to deliberate, and they had come to a conclusion. The jury had decided that they were unable to reach a unanimous verdict and the court declared a mistrial. So now with a hung jury in this case, Emmanuel was now given another shot to prove his innocence in this murder story, but he wouldn't get that shot until early spring of 2019. Also, later on the jury was polled and five of the jurors believed Cameron and Emmanuel committed this murder together. By the beginning of the second trial, Emmanuel Fair had already been sitting in prison for almost nine years. 
but Emmanuel had remained hopeful that he and his now second lawyer, Ben Goldsmith, would find a way to prove his innocence in this murder case. Emmanuel did have a different lawyer when all of this first started, but Emmanuel fired him due to the amount of neglect Emmanuel was receiving from him at the time, which at one point, Emmanuel went seven months without hearing from him. So now the second trial would carry on, weeks had gone by before the jury had come to a decision on this case. Then on June 11, 2019, the jury had deliberated and the jury had come to the decision that Emmanuel Fair was found not guilty for the murder of Arpanachinaga. So in almost a decade sitting behind bars, Emmanuel Fair had finally been proven innocent of Arpana's murder and he was now out of prison and could finally return home. Now, this is where I'm going to conclude the story of Arpanajanaga's case and finish up the episode with some of my thoughts and opinions on this case, followed by my speculation on what may have happened to Arpana in those early hours of November 1st, 2008. So we now know that Emmanuel Fair has been proven innocent of this murder and has been acquitted. So in my opinion, that leaves us with one other possible person of interest in this case, Cameron Johnson. Throughout the course of this case, detectives were able to find some pretty incriminating evidence towards Cameron, even going as far as drafting up a probable cause document supported by 48 pieces of evidence, according to the Seattle Weekly. There is just so much circumstantial evidence that points Cameron's way. The guy not only lied to police about his movements during and after the time of the murder, but even asked friends at the time if they thought maybe he went over to Arpana's apartment in his sleep. Cameron also had an injury to his leg after the murder, but claimed it was from wrestling with another guy at the belated Halloween party he attended. Cameron had called Arpana twice around 3 a.m., just hours before she was murdered. Cameron had expressed interest in Arpana. Cameron's printing out maps of local pawn shops while Arpana is missing items from her apartment. And the fact that he literally tried to leave the country the next day without a passport because he wanted to explore. There's still tons of other evidence, but I speculate that all of this evidence tells us a story of what happened that day, but for some reason the Redmond police seem to think otherwise. Brian Coates, who was the detective on this case, completely botched this investigation from the start, and there should have been no reason why they did not take possession of Cameron's phone right away, especially after they had just caught Cameron already lying to them. Emmanuel Fair was targeted in this case because of his skin color, social status, and previous criminal history, which fit him in perfectly for what the Redmond police were looking for. This case was never about finding the right person that committed this murder, and it's just another example of law enforcement and DAs just trying to find a conviction, no matter what the costs are. Now, before I begin this speculative theory, I just want to remind everyone again that no one has ever been found guilty for the murder of Arpana. So my theory is that whoever killed Arpana Janaga knew her and she trusted them. Reason being is there was an eyewitness account of someone in Arpana's apartment doorway right around 3 a.m., the same time our neighbor Cameron was calling Arpana's phone. I speculate the perpetrator knocked on Arpana's door, spoke with her in the doorway, and then she let whoever it was inside the apartment. Once inside the apartment, I speculate she was attacked from behind and most likely knocked out cold, and this would explain why she never screamed or yelled and the blunt force trauma to her head according to the autopsy report. So after Arpana was knocked out, this is when I speculate the killer assaulted, gagged, strangled, covered the body with numerous liquids, and even attempted to light her on fire. 
At some point though, I do believe Arpana was able to fight back and possibly injure the killer, and I say this because she was trained in martial arts and she showed signs of defending herself. So after hours of being inside her apartment, her other neighbor Kyle wakes up around 8am hearing weird noises coming from Arpana's apartment, and I speculate these noises were Arpana's last moments of being alive. Then her body falls to the floor, and this is when the killer decides to throw her bloody comforter in the bathtub with the water running, and the running water was said by the neighbor to last around an hour. Then I speculate that the killer decided to leave her apartment, but before they did, they locked the door with their keys that were never found, and then kicked in the front door from the front, and this was to make it look like a forced entry, and then whoever it was left anywhere between 9 and 10 a.m. After the killer left Arpana's apartment, they had to get rid of some evidence, which ended up being some of Arpana's personal belongings, such as her phone and digital camera. The killer could have pawned these items to a local pawn shop, but I find that to be a little too risky. So I think the killer drove somewhere far from her apartment and discarded the items by throwing them out somewhere. Then after all of this, the killer most likely returned home at some point in the day, and then Arpana's body would be discovered two days later by a family friend Jay and next door neighbor Cameron Johnson. Now, a lot of my theory does come from the circumstantial evidence that surrounds Cameron in this case, but after looking at everyone else, Cameron's movements that day seem to make the best sense here. Plus, all of the odd behavior that he exhibited throughout the course of this case, he stopped taking his psych meds, there was lying, the, the whole I don't remember anything, it's all just too incriminating in my opinion. Again, Cameron's never been charged for any crime in this case, and he does remain an innocent man. So in conclusion to this episode, Arpana's murder is still unsolved. The investigation into this murder was poorly ran by the Redmond police, and an innocent man sat behind bars for almost a decade. There's also been no justice for Arpana Janagar or her family, and her family even had to spend $7,000 to fly her body back to India for burial, all the while still seeking closure in their daughter's gruesome death. This was a very puzzling case that still leaves me questioning a lot of the decisions that were made by the Redmond police at the time, and in the end, a wonderful, kind, hard-working woman's life was taken for no reason at all. So please try and bring some awareness to Arpana Janaga's story, share it with other people, and just maybe it will start getting the attention that I feel it deserves. As for Emmanuel Fair, he finally got out from behind bars, but still awaits that full feeling of freedom that most of us live with every day. And now he's currently suing the city of Redmond, the Redmond Police Department, and lead detective in this case, Ben Coates, who now serves as a captain in the Redmond Police Department. What happened to Emmanuel Fair being wrongfully accused has happened too many times from what I've seen in my experiences researching these cases, but I am very happy to see that Emmanuel got most of the justice he deserved, and I'm also very happy that the jury from the second trial really got this verdict right. Now to conclude this episode, again check out the Suspect Wondery podcast covering Arpana's case. It's a great podcast series that dives headfirst into this story, and it really does tell you a lot about this case. And one last thing before I head out, I want to go ahead and thank everyone again who has tuned into the episode and made it this far with me. I appreciate all the support from my listeners, and I'm excited to start having these new episodes published every other week on Sundays, so stay tuned. I will have some great cases coming up. And for the next case I'll be covering on this podcast will be the mysterious death of 21-year-old Lauren Agee. 
Lauren and some friends took a weekend trip to attend Wakefest at Center Hill Lake, Tennessee in late July 2015. But all fun on this trip turned quickly into a nightmare when Lauren's body was found floating face down in a cove the following day. So make sure you tune in next time to hear about Lauren's case. Thank you again everyone for listening. Don't forget to check out the videos for my episodes on YouTube. And my always friendly reminder, love everyone but trust no one. I'm your host Drew V and you've been listening to another episode of Drew Crime.